You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Jimmy Carter, the 39th President of the United States, has become one of the world's most prolific and respected humanitarians, whose work through the Carter Center sees him traveling the globe fostering peace, fighting disease, and promoting democracy. It was this unwavering belief in peaceful resolution that cost him his presidency. The storm, the embassy hostages in Tehran tonight. And there's almost nothing the United States can do about it. Do you feel there were any choices you would have made differently? I think I would have been re-elected easily if I had been able to rescue our hostages from the Iranians. And everybody asked me, what would you do more? I would say I would send one more helicopter because if I had one more helicopter, we could have brought out not only the, the 52 hostages, but also brought out the rescue team. And when that failed, then I think that was a main factor that brought about my failure to be reelected. So that's one thing I would change. I would say, do something, anything, and he said, and then have them take a hostage out one at a time, one day, and, and execute them in front of the world. You know, he, he was firm, but it was tough. We knew he would probably not, probably not be reelected. He didn't give in, so I was proud of him. But peace is very difficult. Uh, war is popular. In our country. Even your wife, Rosalind, was encouraging you to take action. Was it hard to, to not take everyone's advice around you, even your wife's? Yes. Um, well, I could have been reelected if I had taken military action against Iran. It would have shown that I was strong and resolute and, and um, manly and so forth. But uh, I think if I, I could have wiped Iran off the map with the weapons that we had. Uh, but in the process, a lot of innocent people would have been killed, probably including our hostages. And so I stood up against all that, uh, all that advice, and then eventually my prayers were answered, and every hostage came home safe and free. And so I think I made the right decision in retrospect, but it was not easy at the time. I think he was uh, incredibly unfairly judged. I mean, he was ahead of his time when he was in the White House. And I think if it hadn't been for the Iran hostage uh, situation, uh, he would have had a second term and I think uh, most likely would have been as well respected for his time in office as, as for his time outside the office. Do you feel the American people have accepted that now, that it was the right decision? I think increasingly they have, as more facts are known and as people look back on those times. Uh, but there's still a strong inclination in our country to, to take uh, military action when I think it's not necessary. You left office, sir, as you have said, involuntarily. If you had been re-elected, what would you have liked to have accomplished? I don't have any doubt that if I had had an, another term in office, I could have implemented very firmly the peace agreement that I negotiated with Israel and its neighbors uh, that was never fully implemented. So now, here, 35 or 40 years later, we still have Israel not at peace with its neighbors. But my successors were not very interested in, in the Mideast peace process, not as deeply as I was. And that's one of the things that I could have done differently.
this was, you have to recall, the time. Late 1979, uh, President Carter was actually being challenged by Teddy Kennedy from within his own party. Uh, Kennedy was, was going to make a run for the presidency himself. And the fact that Jimmy Carter could show himself to be president of the United States, dealing with a national crisis that everyone in the country cared about, and everyone in the country did, they really wanted those hostages back. And, you know, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree became not just an anthem. People were tying. That's when they began tying yellow ribbons around the old oak trees and telephone poles and mailboxes all over the country to bring those hostages home. So the White House began giving not one press briefing a day, but two press briefings a day. And the State Department gave two press briefings a day. They loved the publicity to begin with. It was only after a month or so that they began to see that, uh, you know, this isn't working out so well. We don't know how we're going to get those hostages out. And it may be a while before we get them out. And here was ABC putting this program on, which from the very earliest days came on with America held hostage, day 9, day 10, day 30, day 40. And all of a sudden, every one of those, and then Walter Cronkite picked it up. And he started doing it on the CBS Evening News, the hostage crisis, day 48, day 110. So they hated it after the first month or two, but they helped create it during the first month when the president's people announced what they called their Rose Garden strategy. The president wasn't going to leave the White House until this thing was over. Well, it was the stupidest thing they could have done. Because by announcing the Rose Garden strategy, what they had said to the hostage holders in Tehran was, you know, we're, president ain't moving. You've got the world's attention, which was exactly what the Iranian hostage takers wanted. And furthermore, they put out the word that we're not going to do anything to endanger the lives of the hostages. Now put yourself into the, into the shoes of the hostage takers. Washington is saying, let me see if I got this straight. They're not going to do anything to endanger the lives of the hostages, so we don't have to worry about an invasion. And the president thinks about them first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and he's not going to leave the White House until this thing is over. We've got these guys nailed to the wall. I mean, this thing is the, is the best publicity we could have dreamed of. And of course it was. But here we are, 20, almost 26 years later, and U.S. relations with Iran are still in the sewer, uh, which probably doesn't work to the advantage of either country. First of all, you had people like Jody Powell and Hunting Carter, who were the spokespeople at the White House and the State Department, respectively, and they, they are awfully decent and intelligent men uh, who I think realized that they were in a trap of their own making. Because America, it turned out, was held hostage by those 52 men and women who were being held in, I mean, you know, by the people who were holding the 52 men and women in, in Tehran. Uh, it made it terribly, terribly difficult for the United States to do anything. 
presidency was held hostage, and indeed, I think it can be argued that uh, it was because of this image of Jimmy Carter as an ineffectual president who wasn't able to do anything uh, to get those hostages out of there in a proactive way. And you remember there was a military operation that was referred to as Operation Blue Light, I think, uh, where a helicopter went down in the desert and a number of American servicemen were killed. So even when the president did, did try to take action, it backfired because uh, we lost uh, a lot of uh, American servicemen over there and still didn't get the hostages out. President, could you tell us how the tide is being turned in the case of the American hostages in Tehran? Well, we haven't made <clears throat> adequate progress there. What we've done since the very beginning is to try to protect the lives and safety of those hostages from the original threats that they would be tried and executed to build up on a worldwide basis support for opposition, the condemnation of Iran, and the calling on the Iranian government to protect those hostages and to release them, and to have an adequate uh, commitment in our own nation's military strength and otherwise, other strength, to protect those hostages and to expedite their release. If you uh, remember early, we were fearful about their very lives because those threats to their safety and to their lives were made openly and publicly. We are facing a horrible example of international terrorism, the holding of innocent people as kidnapped victims, supported by and condoned by the government of Iran. And not only have our, has our country and our allies condemned this action and now imposing multilateral economic sanctions against Iran, but the Muslim countries themselves, of whom Iran is a member, have recently called upon Iran to release the hostages and to resolve this crisis. And, and yet the Iranian uh, parliament is now saying that it may be late July before they even discuss the fate of the hostages. My hope and my prayer is that they will be released very soon, but I cannot predict that. Do you still consider it a crisis, Mr. President? I notice, looking through transcripts, that some months ago, every time you had visitors to the White House, you mentioned the subject and brought it up yourself. Now it seems to me you mention it somewhat less or volunteer the subject somewhat less. Is it still a crisis? Should yes. we still be saying on the air every day, day 100 and 200 or whatever it is? Yes. Should we still be flying flags at half-mast, tying yellow ribbons? Is it still a crisis? It's in other still words? a crisis. Why don't you talk There about is it? never any time in my, <clears throat> in my day's work that I'm not aware of the fact that 53 American hostages are being held as an act of international terrorism by the people, government, and the terrorists in Iran. We have mounted uh, military force placement, primarily naval forces, in the uh, Indian Ocean and in the Persian Gulf region. We have made a rescue attempt, which unfortunately was not successful, hopefully to get the hostages out. But in its failure, even, it showed the determination that we have to protect those 53 hostages. And in addition to our own nation's unilateral actions, and economic sanctions, we have now induced our allies to impose economic sanctions as well. I don't believe anyone who's in a responsible position in Iran does, that don't agree that Iran is suffering economically and politically and diplomatically by the holding of these hostages. Those pressures, although they have not yet been successful, must be maintained. And one of the ways to maintain that pressure is to let the world be reminded every day 
But the hostages yet, are being held. But, sir, haven't you sort of changed the signal yourself by coming out of the White House and starting to campaign after saying for so long that you couldn't because of Iran? Well, to some degree, the circumstances have changed, and to some degree, the emphases, has, must, be, emphases must be changed. After the unsuccessful rescue operation, it became then better for us to, to concentrate on a broad-based international economic pressure to be exerted against Iran. As a result of that effort, the European allies have now imposed economic sanctions against Iran. A major adequate? step... I, well, I would rather they be much more severe. In their minds, they are adequate. We can't control those allies. They're independent nations. But they have taken a major step in additional economic sanctions against Iran above and beyond what Iran has had to experience in the past. We hope that all these efforts collectively will be successful in protecting the lives of our hostages and at the earliest possible moment, I pray that they'll be released, but yet, I cannot predict the day. Yet they continue to, uh, to talk of placing the hostages on trial. Will the administration tolerate the, those people being put on trial in Iran? The third week in November, I think it was the 20th, we issued a statement that still prevailed in effect, prescribing what actions our nation would reserve as options if the hostages are tried or abused in any way. Those actions would be very severe against Iran. We have not closed any option for our nation to exercise. But for me to spell it in detail, what we would do, I think would be inappropriate. Welcome to our third show on the Iranian hostage crisis and Jimmy Carter's presidency and the 1980 election will begin to kind of supersede what's going on. They're negotiating, and there's the stuff, and it just keeps dragging on and on and on, which will hurt President Carter throughout the 1980 election, uh, even though he does survive this challenge from Ted Kennedy and wins that actually fairly handily. Uh, he won't survive the race with Ronald Reagan, but despite that, he's still in the race, in the hunt until that final weekend. But we're going to be in season Ten next year when we move into looking at the Reagan-Bush years. Uh, we'll focus on George H.W. Bush, but we will cover the 1980 election in depth, and so I did not want to go through that here. Uh, just know that, of course, it leads to Jimmy Carter uh, losing, and, uh, and then as he is basically wrapping up his administration, things will come together for him uh, to try to get these hostages out of Iran, and that is the story that we're going to tell in the next uh, part of this episode. It also, America Held Hostage, was an ABC News late night show that they started to cover this uh, crisis, and I thought we'd tell you a little bit of story of that because that's that will turn into one of the most successful late night, you know, after eleven thirty shows in the history of television, Nightline with Ted Koppel. It goes back to Rune Arledge's desire to have a one-hour evening newscast from 6.30 to 7.30. And the affiliates didn't just say no, they said hell no, over our dead body. Uh, but Rune was a fellow not to be denied, uh, with a great sense of creativity. And he decided that what he was going to try and do was take the, the second half hour of that one-hour newscast and put it on at 11.30 at night. But there, too, uh, the affiliates were making so much money on these syndicated programs uh, on which they just 
you know, since they weren't getting it from the network, they had all five and a half or six minutes worth of commercials to themselves. They might pay, depending on the size of the market, $3,000, $5,000, $10,000 for uh, uh, an old episode of MASH or whatever it was in those days. But they could make far more money than they could when they ran a network program where the network got three and a half minutes of commercial time and they only got three minutes. Hence their reluctance to give up the time period. Rune decided that what we needed was a huge story, a big story with what reporters call legs. In other words, a story that just goes on and on and on and on. Uh, and we did late-night specials at 11.30 when the Pope came to visit America. Pope came, Pope left, story's done. We did late-night specials when Elvis died. Elvis died, Elvis is still dead, Elvis is missing, but you can only do so many programs on Elvis, and then you had to give back the 11.30 time period. Until a moment in early November of 1979 when 52 American hostages were taken at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Uh, we didn't go on the air until, I think, the 8th of November, but Roon told us to go on, and he said, you will go on and you will tell us what has happened on this story every night at 11.30 at night, and you will tell me whatever you can come up with, whatever it is, and you will sometimes do 15 minutes, sometimes you'll do 20 minutes, sometimes you'll do half an hour. And Frank Reynolds is going to anchor it. And Sam, we're going to come to you, Sam Donaldson, at the White House for a lot of stuff. And Ted, we're going to need you to stay late because we need a lot of stuff from the, from the State Department. And we were lucky enough to uh, have a guy who was in Tehran at the time that the hostage crisis happened. He was a radio reporter, but briefly he enjoyed some prominence on, on television. Uh, and so we did that night after night after night. What I didn't know until quite literally a few days ago when I was talking to David Burke, who was senior vice president of ABC News, David Burke had been a, uh, a senior advisor to Teddy Kennedy in the Senate and has a really good political nose, very smart guy. He and Rune Arledge were summoned over to uh, the offices of Leonard Goldenson, who was the founder of ABC. And when they got there, Leonard was there, and Fred Pierce, who was the president of the television network, was there, a couple of other people were there. And at one point, Leonard said to David, David, you know Washington better than any of us. How long can this go on before the president has to take action? And David said, certainly not more than four weeks. Okay, said Leonard, go ahead. You can do this late night program until the hostage crisis is over. And as David tells the story, he and Rune went down to their town car that was waiting for them. And as they were driving back, Rune started singing, Give them the old 
razzle dazzle, razzle dazzle them. And then David started singing razzle dazzle them. So they had razzled and dazzled their way into a program that would last only until the crisis was over. They took out an ad the next morning in the New York Times, or the day after that in the New York Times and the Washington Post, saying, ABC News will stay on the air with America held hostage until the hostages are released, which, as it turned out, was 444 days after they were captured, by which time, that interim program that ABC News put on at 11.30 at night had evolved into ABC News Nightline, a permanent program, which, as we now speak, has lasted almost 26 years. Day 142 of the Iran hostage crisis, and the Shah's arrival in Egypt complicates efforts to free the hostages. We'll talk about that tonight with the top Iranian diplomat in this country and with the wife of one of the hostages. Tomorrow, it's the New York and Connecticut primaries, very likely make-it-or-break-it time for Edward Kennedy. This is ABC News Nightline, reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Good evening. This is a new broadcast in the sense that it is permanent and will continue after the Iran crisis is over. There will also be nights when Iran is not the major story. When we'll bring you briefly up to date on Iran, but we'll focus on some other story. That's not the case tonight. Again, today, Iran is the major story. And for the first time on television, we'll provide the opportunity for the wife of an American hostage to speak live with an Iranian official. Once again, today, it all focuses on the deposed Shah. He arrived today in what may be his last haven, Cairo. Egyptian President Sadat escorting the Shah to his quarters in Cairo's finest hospital and telling newsmen that Egypt will be the Shah's permanent home. In Rome, one of Iran's leading religious figures, the Ayatollah Kalkali, also known as the Hanging Judge, told reporters that Sadat will pay for granting asylum to the Shah. Kalkali also warned those American hostages accused of spying would be tried and possibly imprisoned. At the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, it is now Tuesday morning. Islamic religious leaders and Tehran radio have been calling for massive demonstrations to protest the flight of the Shah to Egypt. Those demonstrations scheduled to begin within the next hour or so. Because of the Persian New Year, we have no satellite facilities from Iran, but ABC's Bill Blakemore is standing by on an audio circuit. Bill, have those demonstrations begun yet? And does it look as though they really are going to be as massive as, as have been called for? Uh, Ted, right now people are already gathering at about 10 rallying points throughout the city here to march on the embassy where they should arrive in about an hour. It's a little early in the morning here to tell just how big the demonstration will be, but it promises to be an angry one. The radio and television have been asking people to join this march in order to show their hatred for American plots, as they put it. Bill, U.S. officials here are saying that they don't expect the Iranians to take out uh, any of their hostility against the hostages. That is hostility because the Shah has left for uh, Egypt. Do you share that hope? So far, none of the Iranian officials, nor the militants at the embassy, nor Ayatollah Khomeini have made any announcements about their next step. It seems clear from some new anti-American films that appeared on television here last night and this march today that we're in for some renewed anti-American dramatics, at least. The impression we get here is that the Iranians are still deciding how they will respond to the Shah's move to Egypt, but we should get some more hints about their thinking in about six hours when Foreign Minister Gopsadeh gives a news conference here. 
Thank you very much, Bill Blakemore. Standing by now at the Iranian embassy here in Washington is the senior Iranian diplomat in the United States, the Chargé d'Affaires, Mr. Ali Aga. May I ask you that same question, Mr. Ali Aga? Is your country, do you think, going to take out its anger over the flight of the Shah on the American hostages? I think the uh, fate of the American captives uh, will be decided by the uh, Islamic uh, Constituent Assembly. And uh, so this has been assured uh, repeatedly by uh, President Banisad. Of course, it was initiated by Ayatollah Khomeini and accepted by the uh, students in the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And now, Mr. Aliaga, the uh, Ayatollah Khalkhali said, as you just heard earlier, that uh, those accused of espionage among the hostages will be brought to trial and possibly sent to prison. It sounds as though we've gone back in time again. Uh, first of all, I personally do not have any knowledge about that. I have heard just from the reports here. And uh, However, the overall decision, again, I like to mention, it is left up to the Islamic Assembly in the, uh, sometimes in the near future. Mr. Aliaga will be back with you a little later in this broadcast. In a moment, we'll also have a report on the trials of one hostage family and a live conversation with Mrs. Dorothea Moorfield. For 142 days now, Richard Moorfield has been held hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And for 142 days, the Moorfield family in San Diego has been trapped by frustration and uncertainty. Here's Ken Kashiwahara. Every morning after she gets her two boys off to school, Dottie Moorfield writes to her husband Richard, the Consul General at the American Embassy in Iran, and now a hostage. She doesn't know if the letter will even get there. The last letter she received from him was in February. He said that he was fine, but not much else. They sound very much like him, but then I get mad. I mean, you know, I, I, I get very angry at the fact that he's being held, and, and in one of them where he says we're allowed to write every three, three days, I just, you know, you, you react to your, your anger at the people holding him. At school, 15-year-old Stephen Moorfield says he thinks about his father all the time. Sometimes, he says, he simply can't get through the school day and has to go home. His brother, Kenneth, who is 14, says the experience has been emotionally draining. I feel frustrated that, you know, where you're trying to keep your emotions and you're trying to keep yourself from getting really excited because, you know, every time it seems it's like a roller coaster ride that, you know, you go up and you get down. The Moorfield boys seem mature beyond their ages, and that worries their mother. I think they're having to cope and having to handle more than they should have to in their early teens. And I hope that it doesn't hurt them, that it doesn't leave scars. The Moorfields watch more television newscasts than ever before, looking, listening, always hoping. But it is when the day ends that Dottie Moorfield says hope is hardest to come by. It's when you have to face the fears, the uncertainties, and the worries that you've that I've managed to push aside all day, they all come back and they surface and everything looks so bleak at, at night. Ken Kashiwahara, ABC News, San Diego. With us now in the studios of our San Diego affiliate, KGTV, is Mrs. Moorfield. 
I have to ask you, you've obviously been watching television today also, what do you make of it now with the Shah having gone off to, to Egypt? Do you feel a, a personal resentment over that or do you have any compassion for the Shah? I think the Shah is obviously an ill man. I think the choice to go to Egypt was his to make and he made it. I hope he finds there the peace that he's looking for. Now what about the, uh, the hopes expressed by the American administration today that none of this will be taken out on the hostages? Clearly you share the same hope, but what about your convictions? What about your feelings? I, I am not sure. I hope it won't be. I assume they've spoken a great deal of justice and honor and they have promised the hostages will not be harmed. I think I have to hold them to that and assume that they will keep their commitment to see that the hostages remain in good health and unharmed. Is it your sense that the Iranians have kept those commitments that they've made until now? I really don't know because of course we haven't seen, people have not been allowed inside. There's really no way to tell. Well, Mrs. Moorfield, we'll give you an opportunity to speak to an Iranian official in a moment. We'll be back with Mrs. Moorfield and with Aliaga in just a moment. With us now, live from San Diego and Washington, again, Mrs. Dorothea Moorfield and Mr. Aliaga at the Iranian Embassy. To both of you, let me say, obviously, the press has been greatly involved in, in this crisis all along. And it occurred to us here that you two might have a lot to say to each other, particularly Mrs. Moorfield. Is there anything you would like to ask Mr. Aliaga? Well, certainly my first question is how can the government of Iran, in view of the fact that your president admits what has been done is a breach of international law, the UN has condemned your country for it, how can you continue to hold these innocent people? Well, Mrs. Moorfield, how... Could you remain silent in the past 27 years when your government was involved in uh, torturing, killing, and uh, doing all kinds of corrupt action against our people? You see, we cannot really ask these questions out of context. And I am saying this not just to react to you, I am requesting to you to look at the whole picture, not just at one segment of it. And I think enough has been said in this respect. Of course, I respect your feeling and the feeling of your children. And that I personally and humbly are sorry for you know, your feelings, but this is something that uh, has a history behind it. And I think... Uh, one thing that I should say is that, you know, you have been perhaps watching too much TV, as you and I both are on TV. I should thank, uh, at least for the title of this show that has been changed from Iran Crisis, America Held Hostage into Nightline. Even these small changes, you know, can have effect on the subconscious of people, especially like yourself, who are, you know, concerned certainly more than anybody else. Mr. Aliagov. Permit me to interrupt for a moment just to give Mrs. Moorfield another chance to, to get a question in. I'm sure there's more she'd like to ask you. Sure. Right. One thing I would, of course, like to say on the history is there is also a long history of diplomatic immunity. But to go on to my next question, why are we not being allowed to hear from the hostages? Why are we not corresponding with them? Why are there so few phone calls coming out? Why isn't there mail coming out of that embassy in Tehran? 
Well, perhaps one reason is because your CIA is so sophisticated. You know, look at Canada, the way they got the, some of the people whom perhaps we didn't have anything really against them out from Iran. I think really the security measure is the main reason behind this. In fact, not I think, I believe that. Uh, imagine in a free uh, revolutionary society, you know, everybody could uh, take any action. Uh, so I think this is because of the security measure, really nothing else. You buy that, Mrs. Morfield? No, I don't. I don't see how a letter from my husband to me or a phone call from my husband to me could be a threat to your security in any way. Well, remember, some of the letters were kept here, and this was, at, you know, told here in the media that were kept in the U.S. Department of State. How do you know that they are not holding the letters from your husband? I see that that would serve them no purpose. Why then, if you think the State Department don't, you let a third party in, you should a Swiss or someone, why are there not photographs being taken and sent out of all the hostages? Why do we only see a few? Uh, you see, I do not know about that. I, I sincerely do not know the answer to that. But as far as the letters are concerned, Mrs. Morfield, you know that, that uh, right after John Thomas came back from Tehran with uh, over 120 letters, over 140 letters, then all of a sudden there was a pour out of letters and then later on we realized that these letters were kept in the State Department away from the families. And here I should say really, there are, I, I'm not accusing any individual, but certainly there is an interest, it appears to me, in the past 142, 43 days that there is an interest to keep these people as hostage in Tehran, in this country. And you people have the right to find out more than I myself Mr. why Oliaga, this is the case. If I may, let me interrupt for a second. Are you accusing the administration now of, of prolonging the Iranian crisis for political reasons? For what reasons? Well, uh, I, I am saying that if you look at the history of the past 140-some days, you see the ups and downs uh, politically in this country. You see, internally, uh, there, there is still a problem that if anybody shows any flag, any official shows any flag against the Shah in this country, it, it will be considered as a suicide. Look what happened to Kennedy. Then externally, if anybody says anything against the Shah, what are they going to do with Sadat? What are they going to tell to other puppets across the world? I mean, these are political realities in this country. Mr. Aliaga, I'm afraid we have run out of time. I do thank you for being with us this evening. And Mrs. Dorothea Moorfield, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back in a moment. We were going to bring you a special report on the campaign of Senator Ted Kennedy in New York, but live television. A reminder, we'll be here tomorrow night along with Frank Reynolds and the ABC News political team to give you the results of the New York and Connecticut primaries as well as the latest news. That is our report for tonight. This is Ted Koppel for all of us here in Washington and at ABC News. Good night. Now let's move into that final 48 hours as the Reagan administration is about to come in and President Carter is doing everything he can to get this hostage crisis to be sought resolved uh, before he leaves office.
and the Iranians will do one last insult, slapping him in the face uh, as they go, uh, which uh, I, I still, to this day, don't understand how Iran has been able to operate over all these years with basic immunity for the things that they do. But uh, it is what it is. What is your memory today of that last long night in the Oval Office? I had not been to bed for three days at all. But I was trying to put together 12 different nations within which banks existed that held Iranian assets, gold and, and billions of dollars. At the same time, we were trying to deal with the Iranians through the Algerians. So I would speak English, the Algerians spoke French, the Iranians spoke Persian, and so we had very complex letters going back and forth. And we not only had to get the approval 100% of very greedy American bankers who wanted to extract as much financial benefit as they could from the Iranian funds that had been, that had been deposited in their banks, but also all these other foreign banks that were not under my control. And uh, at the same time, we had to negotiate with the Iranians uh, on how the hostages should be released. They made innumerable demands. The Iranian bank was an independent group, and they had to approve at the final stages all the banking arrangements that, that we had made around the rest of the world. So it was extremely complex. And uh, one crisis after another arose, and eventually we were able to get them all resolved so that the, the night before I left the White House as president, uh, we had everything confirmed. The next morning, I knew that the hostages would be released because the Iranians had approved from the political point of view and also from the economic banking side. And, the, and all the hostages were put in an airplane early on the morning of, uh, of Reagan's inauguration day. And I was still in the uh, White House with uh, informal clothes on. Rosen came and told me I had 15 minutes to change into a morning suit because the Reagans were on the way to the White House. As I went up to the reviewing stand, I knew that every hostage was in an airplane on the end of the runway waiting to take off from Tehran Airport. And then President Reagan made his inaugural address when I started back up. No longer president. The Secret Service told me the hostages had cleared the airspace and they were on their way home free. And I, I would guess that's probably the, the single happiest moment of my whole life. I went out of office, but my hostages were free and safe. And then, of course, the Iranians waited until quite literally the minute after the Carter presidency was over. Uh, and quite literally, as Ronald Reagan was being sworn in as the next president of the United States, is when they gave word to allow the plane with the hostages to take off. For Jimmy Carter, day 444 begins just as the last two days have begun. Without sleep, exhausted, surrounded by aides in the Oval Office, President Carter is desperately trying to salvage this symbolic victory for his administration to free the 52 American hostages before Ronald Reagan takes the oath of office at noon. The first good news comes at 3.17 a.m. The Iranians have accepted the plan to transfer some $8 billion in Iranian assets frozen in U.S. banks to Iran via a bank in London. While the money is Iranian, it is nevertheless a form of ransom. 
The plan is mobilized. 6.47 a.m. Treasury Secretary William Miller calls. The electronic transfer of funds from U.S. banks to London is complete. Right on, man. That's great. That's great. The Oval Office vigil continues. Carter breaks to dress for the inauguration. There is still no inkling of the irony that lies ahead. For Jimmy Carter, who had himself become a captive of the hostage crisis, there is still hope that the hostages will be freed while he is still in office. 11 a.m. The president and the president-elect leave the White House together en route to the inauguration ceremony. Carter is receiving updates by telephone in the presidential limousine. And still, no hostage release. The incredible manipulation of this day in history is becoming clearer. Shortly after 11 a.m., Peter Jennings reports from Frankfurt. Now an official of PARS, the official Iranian news agency, has just said that the departure of the hostages is imminent. 11.30. Reports of the hostage release are flying fast and furiously now. With Ronald Reagan's oath of office now only 30 minutes away, Jimmy Carter, on his way to the inaugural podium, is questioned by Sam Donaldson. Mr. President, are the hostages out? Can't say yet. Not yet, Sam. Not yet. Is that what he said, Frank? I he couldn't said, hear it. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Not yet. They've cheated him. They've cheated him right down to the end. But at 11.38, some 20 minutes before the oath of office, teletype alarm bells sound all over the world. What's happening, and this will mean a lot more, I suppose, to journalists out there, UPI has just gone with a flash, which is, in effect, the highest, the most important uh, notification of news that they can give. The last time they did it was with the Kennedy assassination. It's two words. It says, hostages freed. In fact, it is premature. The hostages have not yet boarded their plane. Ten minutes later, at 11.50, as the ceremonies on Capitol Hill begin, the hostages run a jeering gauntlet of Iranian students yelling, death to America and death to Carter, as they are put aboard the Algerian 727 that will finally take them to freedom. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. 12.03. Ronald Reagan takes his oath of office. An exhausted Jimmy Carter listens. Well, this administration's objective will be a healthy, vigorous, growing economy... At Maribad Airport in Tehran, the Iranian captors are listening also to Reagan's inaugural address. The hostages are still not airborne. The ceremony ends about 12.25. Some seven minutes later, the planes bearing the hostages and Algerian officials take off from Iran. A final insult to Jimmy Carter, making it technically impossible for him to take credit for their release for his administration. In a holding room just after the ceremony, the new president is briefed by Press Secretary James Brady. Seven minutes later, public confirmation as well.
If it's possible for this diverse nation of 226 million to have unanimity on anything, perhaps the time is now to give a unanimous hallelujah. And for the reason for that, let's go immediately to Peter Jennings in Frankfurt. Ted, hallelujah indeed. Bezad Nabavi, the chief Iranian negotiator, has just confirmed that the Algerian aircraft carrying the hostages have left Tehran, and so does Iran's Mehrabad airport tower, confirming the American hostages finally are on their way. Unless there is the most ultimate manipulation, it has finally happened. Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, now private citizens, leave the capital for Andrews Air Force Base. They are briefed by mobile phone en route. At Andrews, Carter gets a hug from Anita Schaefer, wife of hostage Colonel Thomas Schaefer. He tells her, I'll see him tomorrow. Back at the Capitol, Ronald Reagan confirms to reporters that the hostages have been free. Does it require any action on your part now? No. Both planes are airborne. Where do you understand they're going, Mr. President? The, the, the flight is to take them to, to Algiers and where they change to American planes to go to Wiesbaden. In Iran, the plane bearing the hostages is clearing Iranian airspace at 1.50 p.m. President Reagan breaks the news as he gives the toast at the traditional Inauguration Day luncheon with congressional leaders. Some 30 minutes ago, the planes bearing our prisoners left Iranian airspace and are now free of Iran. In Washington, a two-and-a-half-hour parade gets underway, while all across the nation, the outpouring of sentiment for the hostages has begun. p.m. In a chill drizzle, now former President Jimmy Carter's helicopter touches down in Plains, Georgia, to a hometown hero's welcome. He speaks publicly for the first time since Ronald Reagan became president. Just a few moments, few moments ago, on Air Force One, before we landed Warner Robins, I had received word officially for the first time that the aircraft carrying the 52 American hostages had cleared Iranian airspace on the first, first leg of a journey home and that every one of the 52 hostages was alive, was well, and free. As Carter speaks about the crisis that may have cost him his presidency, the hostages make their first stop on friendly soil a short refueling stop in Athens. Next stop, Algiers. The marching bands continue down Pennsylvania Avenue, but the nation's attention is turning to Algeria. At 4.50, the C-9 Nightingales arrive, the U.S. medevac planes that will carry the hostages on the next leg of their freedom flight. The very planes right top. American flag with a red cross on the tail are taxiing now to their parking places here at the airport waiting for the 52 American hostages who are on their way here from Tehran. In Washington, the national Christmas tree kept dark in honor of the hostages under orders from President Carter 
is burning brightly now, and there are fireworks over the mall. Then, at 8.10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, what 52 families and an entire nation had been waiting 444 days to see, the first glimpse of the hostages out of captivity. Ah, oh, Frank, there we are. Yes. That is Elizabeth Swift, I believe, on the left, Captain and Catherine Cove just behind her, coming off, two of them wearing their yellow ribbons. In cities and towns across the nation, television cameras crowd the living rooms of the hostage families one final time, as the cameras watch the families, in turn watching television, waiting for the moment of recognition. Algerian cameras pan the faces of what are now the former hostages, returnees, the State Department is calling them. An hour and a half later, at 9.42, they are on their way to Frankfurt. Back in Washington, Ronald and Nancy Reagan are going from party to party. The inaugural balls are in full swing, fueled by a new euphoria about the hostage release and a return to the opulence of inaugurations past. There are parties, too, aboard the two C-9 medevac planes. They land at Frankfurt's Rhein-Main Air Force Base at 12.45 a.m., and the hostages wearing new parkers and less dazed expressions greet an enthusiastic throng of fellow Americans. They board buses for the short ride to the military hospital. Their last day of captivity is now over. So is the presidency of Jimmy Carter, so fatefully tied to those 52 hostages. How was your post-presidential recovery period? How much do you remember, and how much has uh, God and nature blanked out <laughs> from those years? I remember it very distinctly. President Reagan, who had refused to be briefed on the hostage crisis and had refused to be briefed on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, was gracious enough to say, knowing that the hostages were about to be released, that he wanted me to go over and greet them when they came back to Wiesbaden, Germany. So I went home, got a brief nap, changed clothes, got back on the airplane with my key staff from the White House, and we flew over to uh, Germany to meet the hostages. And that took a good um, 36 hours. So uh, it was a, a wonderful, happy confrontation with uh, hostages who had been suffering then for 444 days. I did not know how they would react to me uh, when I walked in the room where all of them were assembled. And the first one stood up and uh, looked me in the eyes. He threw his arms around me and hugged me. Both of us shed tears, and I went around the room and, and spoke to every one of the hostages who expressed their gratitude to me, I would say for my reticence and not launching a military attack that might have cost them their lives. And they had some questions that I answered then. Uh, one question was, why did you ever let the, the Shah come into America? Uh, and so forth, I answered the question. And then uh, I went back, and, and some of them were getting haircuts, and they, they were talking on the telephones. We had telephones for everybody to talk to their loved ones back home. And I interrupted some of the phone calls, and I took the phone and said hello to their wives or mothers and so forth. It was a very wonderful experience. And then we flew back home, and we opened a bottle of champagne, some bottles of champagne for the first time. 
Forty years ago today, one of our area's biggest signs of solidarity and celebration played out in northeastern Pennsylvania. It was the day in 1981 when we celebrated the end of the Iran hostage crisis and the return of two of our own. Bruce German and Michael Matrinko had just survived 444 days in captivity. Bruce grew up in Edwardsville. Michael was a native of Oliphant. Bruce died about a year ago, but tonight, 40 years after his release from captivity, Michael Matrinko takes us back to this scene in Oliphant, a time when his hometown gathered to celebrate his return after he lived through a nightmare that lasted for 444 days in Iranian prisons. Michael's release and welcome home celebration brought out thousands. Students had the day off from school. Many people left work early. A nation's prayers were answered. 52 American hostages set free. It's a very dramatic story, and we want to let you know it also includes some strong language. And tonight, this self-described private man, Michael Matrinko, who rarely speaks to reporters about his time in captivity, invited Newswatch 16's Ryan Leckie to his Pennsylvania home. It's here where he opened up about that frightful, life-changing day, November 4th, 1979, when Iranians stormed the U.S. Embassy and took him and 51 others hostage. Now, here's Ryan Leckie with this emotional one-on-one interview with the former hostage. Michael just got out of the car. The world almost never got to know Michael Matrinko of Oliphant as one of the 52 people captured during the Iran hostage crisis. The last of our three area men to arrive here, Michael Matrinko. That's because Michael was not even supposed to be at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran on that day, November 4th, 1979, when 52 Americans were taken hostage by militarized Iranian college students. On a typical day back in the 1970s, Michael was usually out on the streets of Tehran, meeting people. Part of his job as a political officer, well, it meant getting to know the locals and what was happening in the town. Today, we'd call this networking. You have to be out walking the streets, talking to people, meeting with people, going out, drinking with them, dining with them. Normally, I would be out all night or out until two or three or four in the morning. Because of curfews, Michael would often end up sleeping at a friend's house. During this time, he was in his 30s, working out of the U.S. Embassy after hundreds of Americans had already fled the country. Things were already getting very unpleasant there. After all, the late 1970s was a time when many in Iran hated the United States, all because of America's refusal to deport Iran's ousted ruler, the Shah, who was in New York City to receive treatment for cancer. Back in Iran, a revolution was gaining momentum under the Ayatollah Khomeini. In November of 1979, emotions boiled over, and Michael, a typical night owl, got an unusual request. Friends of mine had called me and they asked me if I could be at the embassy in the morning on November 4th. You know, we really have to see. It's very important. I said, what about the afternoon? No, no, no. It has to be in the morning, Michael. We have to see you, you know, around nine o'clock or so. What they said was, we're going off to Lebanon. We have a, you know, we're going to go and see Yasser Arafat. And we want to talk to you before we go to see him. Well, when someone tells you they're going off to meet the head of another major political movement in another country, and the people telling you this are also major political figures in the country where you are, you don't pass up the opportunity. So Michael went to the embassy on the morning of November 4th, 1979. But those friends never showed up. 
That's when I knew that they had screwed me. And as Michael waited for the friends who never came... People started to jump over walls, and suddenly the embassy property was filled with thousands and thousands of people. Walk me through what that looked like and what it felt like and sounded like. Lots of noise, and then, hmm, there's an increased rumbling. We still weren't a huge embassy. There were maybe 65 Americans in it, if that. You had sounds that shouldn't be, you know, things crashing. And then Marines saying, you know, everybody, you know, leave your offices, get away from the windows. And we were being directed to what had been the ambassador's suite. While Michael and the others tried to rush to safety, another group of Americans sprinted to the embassy's communication room where classified documents were kept. They went down there and started to destroy things very quickly, but it was too late. It's amazing how long it takes paper to burn when you want to burn it. Iranian student protesters started taking over the embassy. We surrendered the embassy, officially. And where did they take you? Over to the ambassador's residence, and then the next day to a larger building where we were, you know, just all laying on the floor, still tied up. And that was the last time I saw any American. But while they're walking you from one building to another building, did you think, they're going to kill me? I was angry. Anger doesn't allow you to think about being killed. When you're angry, you're angry. And you don't care about consequences. Were you part of the mock executions? No. I never even knew that happened until I read about it later. I was in handcuffs or zip ties a lot. It's unpleasant. Handcuffed and often blindfolded, Michael says he spent many days living in his own filth. I was in hardcore prisons on concrete floors with, you know, no windows and just little air holes. But I was alone the whole time, too. So I was in solitary from November of 1979 until May, I think, of, 19, of 1980. The room that I was in for a long time was exactly the size of a single mattress. You know, a single you know, mattress for a cot. Michael and the rest of the hostages spent 444 days in captivity. I saw some reports you drew shapes on the wall. Yeah, you know, I'm 74 and I still do this in order to fall asleep. And he thought about escaping. If I'm going to get out of this, if I have to run someday to get out of here, I'd better be in very good physical shape. So I started, you know, a huge program of exercise. What did you do? I run in place for, you know, hours a day. I got up to a thousand sit-ups a day. Even assuming that I could get out, I was in prison clothes or I was in a pair of pants that were held together by a staple at this point. Considering how much Michael was moved around while in captivity, he says he rarely saw or even knew the 51 other American hostages. Did you think you were gonna die there? You know, I didn't care. I just did it day by day. At one point, Michael was brought before an Iranian leader who he gave a piece of his mind to since he could speak the native language, Farsi. You spoke up and you said the conditions you're treating us are worse than animals. And what happened after that? I was warned beforehand that if I said anything at all, that I'd be punished for it. And I was. What kind of punishment? You know, at this point, I don't even remember. I just know that I paid for it. Often roughed up, bruised and isolated, Michael and the 51 other hostages did what they could to survive. All while then-President Jimmy Carter continued to try to negotiate their release. The U.S. even attempted a covert rescue operation. The botched effort became another downfall in Carter's administration after America's own military aircraft collided with each other in an Iranian desert. 
Michael's release eventually came on January 20th, 1981, as President Ronald Reagan took office. Michael remembers that ride to freedom. Are they taking us to the airport? He was a guard in the bus, yelled out, and in Farsi, he said, you American bastards. I simply responded in Farsi in a loud voice. I said, shut up yourself, you son of an Iranian whore. And he got offended. So he hauled me off the bus and the guards beat me up again. And the bus left. At this point, I'm thinking, dumb move. Lucky for Michael, another group of Iranians showed up and shoved him into a car. I left in a Mercedes-Benz in the back seat. And I just thought, this is the only way to leave this city, is in a Mercedes-Benz. Michael Matrenko has just gotten out of the car. Fast forward to January 28, 1981. Michael finally arrived back in northeastern Pennsylvania, greeted by thousands of people as he made his way into his hometown in Lackawanna County. How did that feel knowing the whole country was just praying for your return? Heavy. Very heavy. Right now, I can't recall the emotion of 40 years ago, but it was very emotional. I've heard some people said sometimes you didn't want the attention when you came back to Oliphant like that. You weren't happy with the parade. Or... No, it wasn't that. You can't take someone out of solitary confinement and face them with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It was a shock. Yeah, very much so. You can't change temperatures that quickly. Things break. It was the constant attention. I'm a private person. Were you in the CIA? No, never. CIA has its own people. I was in the Peace Corps, the Department of State. But never in the CIA? No. Have I worked with the CIA? Yes, at various times because we're colleagues at the embassy. Now, at 74 years old, Michael spends his time volunteering, teaching immigrants conversational English in the Carlisle area. His life of foreign service is spelled out in art all over the walls of his home. And a sketch of your welcome home, Michael. Yeah, from the Scranton Times. You know, by the time I go, I want the place to be empty. It's why Michael continues to donate countless pieces of art from all over the Middle East to his alma mater. Scranton Prep. It had all those bare walls. <laughs> and I figured, why not give the art to the school? The 1964 graduate hopes the art, now at Prep, and even the American flag that flew over the White House upon his return inspire students to reach for more and learn from other cultures, like he did being raised in Oliphant. I grew up in a multi-generational family. Artists see the world in a different way than politicians do. The world is changing. It's changing all around us. It is no longer a white Christian world. It's a multicolor, multi-gender, multi-ethnic. And, you know, great. I'm all for it. Now, Michael is living in isolation again, this time by a pandemic. But he looks to the future and he points out to us what he calls the good that came during his 444 days in captivity. I learned all about myself. I knew what I could do, what I couldn't do. I knew what my weaknesses were. I had a lot of time to think about this. Something he almost relives each morning in his kitchen. This is the mug that I used in prison. Unbreakable, nice size, bright color. And it's a reminder that things can always change for the worse or for the better. Now, 40 years after those infamous 444 days in captivity came to an end, 
Michael still has hope that things will continue to change for the better for all of us. I'm Ryan Leckie, News Watch 16. Anyway, from that day on, it, it became a, a tough time. It really it was. It was tough. And uh, when he when he uh, left, and then when he, he uh, passed away, his wife uh, came into South Carolina, and uh, and did an awful lot of work for for USC, and uh, was grateful in many many ways of of helping us and. Uh, Lived here for a long time at the Shaw. Uh, as you know, all of us know, the Iranian situation is not like it was at that time at all, and it still has the problems. And right now, we're having a, a serious problem with them now. And it's uh, it's the thing that fears me from having been in those places is that the lack of really understanding what they might do. Not necessarily for us, but for them too. When if they make some take some actions that that uh, that they do just because we aren't communicating right, and I hope that that doesn't. I hope that we can get that straightened out good, very much better than it is now. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.